0: A few weeks ago, um, as we were going through the Gospel of Mark, we read Jesus' answer to to a religious leader, to a scribe. A scribe was basically an attorney, a lawyer um, of their day, but a lawyer who specialized in God's law. And this guy asked Jesus a question. He listened to Jesus arguing with some guys to correct them about the wrong ideas, and he was so impressed by Jesus' answer, he said to him a question. He said, you know what? Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all? We spent a couple of weeks talking about that over the last month. What's the greatest commandment of all? And you probably recall what Jesus' answer was. He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said this. There is no other commandment greater than these. Well, I think that we intellectually get this. Love God first, love our neighbor as yourself. I think we would, we would intellectually be able to explain what that, means, what that means. We understand that as Christians we are to be marked by love. That's supposed to make us look different than the people of the world. That unlike people who don't know Jesus, um, who if you just watch the news are filled with hate and filled with selfishness. I don't know if, if, if it's getting worse or I'm becoming more sensitive to it. But I'm to the point I almost can't watch the news anymore. Because it's this murder and that murder. And and I mean, it's just unbelievable what you see people who don't know Jesus, what they're like. I mean, this murder without being, you know, sounding morbid, but this, this murder that took place in Sheboygan Falls. We were discussing it and saying, how could it be that a grandson and a friend could beat his grandmother to death with a hammer and a hatchet right up the road from us? I mean, it just happened this last week. You know, how could that be that the world is filled with violence? That's how God described the world of Noah's day. It was filled with violence. It's filled with violence. It's filled with hate. It's filled with with selfishness. That's what the world without Jesus looks like. But then we understand as Christians we're to stand out as different. That what should make us different is not the clothes we wear or the cut of our hair. Those are the kind of things that people used to use to try to identify Christians. Or the way your beard is trimmed or shaved. You know, you can go to some groups today and they'll say, you can tell I'm a Christian because I have a certain kind of beard. Or, and, you know, I'm, I'm laughing at that. I'm just saying that, that we look at those externals. We look at, you know, the, the, the kind of those external things. The, it used to be forever that if you were a Christian, you didn't have long hair. You know, as a guy. And if you're a girl, you better have long hair. And those are all those external things that we looked at. But what Jesus says, describes us as a Christian, is that we should look different than the world, we should stand out as different, because we really are people who love. Now, we, I said we understand this intellectually. However, I'm not certain that we, that myself included, understand the fullness or the depth of the type of genuine Love that Christianity is supposed to produce in us. I don't know that we really grasp it—the the magnitude of it, or that maybe the better way to look at it, the depth of it, of it. You know, and I'm afraid that we settle for something that's so much less. And I say settle because love is a fruit of the spirit. It's something that develops in, or should develop naturally in a healthy. Um, in a healthy person's life, a healthy Christian's life. But all kinds of things can can interrupt it. Um, it can be distractions with worldly things. It can be sin. It can be just even misunderstanding. That we don't understand what it's supposed to look like, and therefore it's not accomplished. And I don't know that we really grasp what it's supposed to be. And the reason I say that is not because I'm somehow standing as a, as a judge and looking at you or me and saying, you know what, I don't think you get it. But it's that as we're going through the Gospel of Mark... We come to something today that that shows me that Jesus is teaching something that says we must not really get it because he's going to expand on what he's already said. See, Jesus was addressing in the text that we're looking at today um, something about love. And he gives us a story that reveals what genuine Christian love for Jesus is really all about. And what it reveals about it, it reveals the extravagant love that should fill the heart of a child of God. Now understand, say, when Jesus points it out, he's not pointing out the exception, he's pointing out the rule. And here's what you and I like to do. I do it. I'm guilty. We look at what, what, what Scripture would point out, or just life would point out, as what should be, and we go, oh, that's the exception. And I'm just average, so I'm not the exception. No, when he points it out, he's pointing out the rule. What should be the average? What should be expected of the average Christ follower? And and not just put on the on the on this pedestal. That's why the church historically has done things like call certain people saints, um, taking certain people and trying to elevate them and say they're better than the rest because somehow they live better. Do um, you know who Jesus called saints? Scriptures call saints everybody who's a child of God. No no, certain higher person. The reason for that is not because we don't want to celebrate somebody who's got it right, but what it is, the reason that we don't really se- separate those out is because we don't want to say, oh, that's okay for them, but it's acceptable for me to be lower. It's acceptable for me to not really attain to what God wants me to attain to. And therefore, I can just be consumed by the things of this world, or I can be dis- sidetracked and distracted, and it's okay to get to this level. Friends, understand something. God has de- destiny for all of you is way up here. The destiny that God has for God created you, every one of you, wonderful to change the world. He created you wonderful to become something that you never could have become unless Jesus was in your life. And he has these incredible, mighty plans for your life. But we settle for something way down here. And it's not about how much money we accumulate or or how much people think about What it really boils down to is, do we really learn how to love? Because that then changes everything. And Jesus, I think, gets, I shouldn't say I think, he gets it. I think I get that he gets, that we don't get the extent of the love that we're supposed to have. Do you follow that whole train of thought there? That we don't really get it. So he goes on to say something here in the Gospel of Mark about love to add on to what he's already said about love. And I wanted to challenge us today. So grab your Bible. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Mark. (laughs) Ha! Gotcha, didn't I, Debbie Oslin? Freaked you out, didn't I? The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. If you're visiting, it's because I get a hard time because we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for a really long time. But here again, I was reminded this morning. Can I give you a little insight? I shouldn't shouldn't chase rabbits, but I'm going to chase a rabbit for just one minute. Saturday nights, almost every Saturday, I come into the church and I pray for the next service. And then I, and then I review my sermon and I ask God to, to, to add anything or whatever. And then Sunday morning, I then review it also, and I go through the whole thing, and, and uh, this morning I got done just looking at my notes, and I said this to the Lord, thank you for every week, giving me something that I believe is life-changing and empowering from your word. That I get done I get done at the end and I go, "God, that's really good. Not me really good." you're incredible because of the insights from your word and what you teach us from your word. And what I was, again, struck by is I said, Lord, I would have never have chosen to preach on this text that I'm going to look at today. I would have glossed right over it like I have a thousand times in my life. And, and I discovered this week a truth about this that I didn't ever know before. And, I, and I, I always think this, I'm just an average guy, and if I discovered something new, I think you can discover something new. From God's word, so don't ever get in this mindset that you have it, you know it all. Because guess what, none of us do. So, Mark chapter fourteen, verses one to eleven, a section of scripture that that we oftentimes just kind of breeze it right over. It says this, verse one: Now the passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, that's Jesus, by stealth and to kill him, for they were saying. Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While well, he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at a table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and she poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. And some of your translations say a beautiful deed to me, the NIV. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before my burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Stop right there. This story, I've read it a hundred times, at least, probably maybe more. But it's a kind of story that you can just kind of skim over if you're reading through the scriptures. After all, if we think about it, in this story, no one's healed, right? Thousands of people. We think about the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through. Thousands of people have not been fed with a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus isn't going in the temple and flipping over tables and making a whip and chasing people out of the temple. All that kind of stuff, you know, the Indiana Jones things. All that. I'm dating myself when I say that, right? All that kind of stuff. That version of the same story. This lady is Mary. Let me give you a little insight into it. This is Mary, the one who sits at the feet of Jesus. And Martha gets mad at her because Martha's making the meal. Remember that story from the Bible? This is that Mary. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. The one whom Jesus has already raised from the dead. At this point, Lazarus has already died. Jesus has had that miraculous day where he walks up, he's in the tomb, and he says, roll away the stone. They say, you can't, Jesus. He stinks by now. It's been four days. And he just looks at him and he says, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth all bound in the grave clothes and he says, unwrap him. That's who he's sitting with on this day. That's the Mary that dumped and breaks the vial and pours the, the expensive nard, this perfume, over Jesus. It was that kind of, it's, this is the lady that, um, this kind of extravagant love of this lady of Mary that caused her to take this vial of pure nard. Which we don't understand that, you know. it's the what's what's a what's an expensive perfume? Yeah, I know you don't have any. <laughs> Some expensive perfume. I don't even know what it's called, you know. But it's not just your expensive perfume you can buy at Kohl's or where else would you buy where else would you buy perfume? I've never bought it. I don't know. <laughs> Is that bad? <laughs> so uh, so, anyways, I think I did once, um, twice. So she, it's counted. You know how many times. <laughs> twice in 25 years. I've bought perfume. Maybe there needs to be a third time. But this isn't just something that I would buy. It says this is pure nard and it's worth 300 denarii. You understand what that's saying? It's not just saying it was expensive. This stuff was equivalent to almost one year's wages. It's calculated that little bottle of nard was worth in today's value about 25 to 30 thousand dollars. It's extravagant. This little vial that was probably a family heirloom, that probably recognized financial security for this for this family, for sure for Mary, worth, you know, a year's wages for her to take that perfume and to pour it over Jesus' head. And according to John's gospel it says, then also took her poured it on his feet also, and wiped it with her hair as the ultimate act of humble, reckless love what we see about that love is she didn't measure it out. That she didn't do what we would so often do, is put a few drops on his head and a few drops on his feet and then keep the rest in rainy day fund. That's not what she did. She broke the vial and she poured it out. With extravagant, genuine Christian love, she poured it all out. She held nothing back. And this is what Jesus is pointing out to us in this story. That is the type of love that real Christianity is intended to produce. And that's why he says that her story will forever be remembered. Why? Because it expresses how the gospel should affect us and what it should produce what's within us. Friends, it's the same thing that Jesus' extravagant love showed to us that his extravagant love drove him to the cross in order to redeem lost humanity. That is duplicated then in those who have been touched and changed by his spirit. That when the spirit of God has freedom in our lives and we nurture the spirit's effect in our lives, it births births reckless love. That's what God intends for it to do. Mary's not supposed to be the exception, she's supposed to be the rule. That his presence by his spirit should birth reckless love for Christ within us. You know what, that's what it did. That's what it's done in the lives of, of countless people over the centuries that have walked with Jesus. And as I thought about this, I thought, God, whose life that I'm aware of really can express that? And I thought about a guy that you're probably familiar with. Who's familiar with a a Lutheran pastor from the 1930s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? You've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? If you're not, church history is a great thing to study, more important than looking at a lot of other things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during the rise of Nazism, one of the most famous people, Christian people, one of the most prolific writers in the last, um, you know, 100 years. Who affected the entire global church through his life and through his actions? You know, Bonhoeffer, his story it goes like this that he was born in a very wealthy German home where his family was very well known. His father was a, a well known psychiatrist and neurologist, and they were, him and his brothers and sisters, came from a large family. They were all expected to succeed. And if you look at history, their brothers, brothers and sisters, as far as the world's view, exceeded very, very successfully. They were, they were very well known in their fields. But at 14, Bonhoeffer did something that didn't make his family very happy at all. At 14, he announced to his family, and I don't know if a 14-year-old has ever done this before or since. He said, God wants me to be a theologian. I don't think most 14-year-olds know what a theologian is. And he said to his family at 14... God wants me to be a theologian. It didn't make his family very happy because that wasn't very flattering to the family history. You know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be something of renown like your father, but a theologian. Well, they allowed him, actually he said his father did it, it kind of reluctantly said, well, let let him get it out of his system, kind of thing, then he can have a real life. Man, I hear that all the time in the church world. People say their kids say they want to go to ministry. No, let's let's hopefully we can dissuade, dissuade that so they can have a real job. I'm glad they didn't do it to Bonhoeffer. You know what he did? He went on and he studied. He studied extensively. He studied under some of the great people of his day. And uh, he also, because he had resources, traveled the world. And he could have lived, matter of fact, he was in America when Nazism really rose to its control and and people were being persecuted in, in Germany. And he could have stayed in America and lived a peaceful life doing God's work anywhere on the planet because he had, he, had he had studied in America, pastored in France. He could have went anywhere in the world he wanted to. But compelled by extravagant and reckless love, he went back to Germany. And he challenged the church to stop aligning with Adolf Hitler. Now I say this with a little bit, I read this, I say this with a little bit of heartbreak, because I'm, I'm half German. You know our community? We are, eight mile circle of our church, we're, we're 60% German. Was it 60 or a little more? Over, over six, just over 60% German. Our LDR study. That's why we're looking at our demographic study. These were my ancestors. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a lot of your ancestors, 60% of you in here have German heritage. It happened just before our lifetime. Some of, your, some of you, you know, on the tail end. Remember this. He challenged Adolf Hitler in something you didn't normally do. He stood up compelled by extravagant and reckless love, and he, he went to the church, and he said, we have to stand against the rising persecution of the Jews in the world. There were Jewish Lutheran ministers that were being imprisoned. And he would, he would talk about, um, where, is, where is your friend, who was, the, who was the Lutheran German minister, who are now sitting in concentration camps, and he was stirring the pot. And he didn't go quietly. He spoke boldly and he wrote aggressively against Hitlerism and Nazism. At one point, the, the German, the German um, leadership to give Adolf Hitler a birthday present had all the Lutheran pastors sign a document saying that they were, that they were aligning with the Nazi uh, church. And he refused to do it. He said, I'm not going to sign that piece of paper. You're, you're, you're not acting like Christian people. I cannot align. And he he even eventually left the Lutheran church of that day because of his refusal to stand against sin and its acceptance of of political Nazism instead of the gospel. And friends, if you don't think there's a parallel today to the church who aligns politically instead of spiritually, then open up your eyes. The reason you need to study history is it always repeats itself. You don't see a, a, a whole wave of people who are aligning politically instead of spiritually and standing for God's principles you're not really looking honestly. So he stood opposed to that, and he stood opposed to the sin, and their compromise. and he joined a little tiny church that was, that was being arisen called the, the Confessing Church. And he even went so far as to join, because he was very well known and very educated, and they trusted him, he was a double agent. And he went in and joined a plot to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Because he knew that if he could kill Hitler, um, he could save you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives. And he put his life on the line. And you know what it cost him? For doing all that for the cause of Christ? For not taking the easy road and just living as a pastor in London, preaching, ger- preaching to German people like he had for a year? That he was compelled to leave that and come back to the middle of the war? You know what it cost that his reckless love cost him? It cost him being put into a concentration camp, being tortured, where interestingly his greatest writings came from. Isn't it amazing? We always pray that we wouldn't have problems. Oh, God, deliver me from difficulty. Almost your entire Bible was written from prison. His letters, his most influential writings, were written in prison while he's being tormented, and they were smuggled out by the German guards who were trying to rescue him. They recognized his godly men, and they were trying to set him free. There was actually plots or uh, escape plans where guards were trying to help him escape, and he refused to do it. Because they took, they had had, had, uh, captured his family, and he knew if he escaped, they would kill his family for sure. So he refused to leave a concentration camp. And three weeks before Adolf Hitler hung himself, the end was coming. Hitler knew it before Adolf Hitler shot himself. Rather, Adolf Hitler's direct command order, his order, not somebody, not some underling. Adolf Hitler's order was hang that man on the gallows in the concentration camp. And they took Dietrich Bonhoeffer out, and the stories were they've never seen such a peaceful execution in their life. He went out there, he knelt down, he prayed. He prayed for the people. He said, all right, go ahead and put a rope around my neck. They hung him. They said there wasn't even one sense of anxiety. He said, go ahead and kill me. I know where I'm going. That was extravagant love. That's extravagant, even reckless love. And that's what Jesus was applauding Mary for in the text in Mark's Gospel. He said, I don't think you get it, Mark, me, and you, put your name in there. You say love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but what's that really look like? He says, let me explain it to you. There's this lady named Mary. And she she said she gave all she had. So he didn't say give something you don't have. He said give what you have, but give it all. And that's what he was talking about extravagant, reckless love. And he said, whenever we read the gospel, whenever we preach the gospel, we'll remember Mary for her example. See, Jesus wants us to know that the transformation that he has in store for us to make us great in his eyes isn't just for our minds. So often we think it's just about learning more Bible knowledge. He never applauds that. He says, it's not about your mind being changed alone so that you think differently or maybe vote differently. But the transformation that he has for us is to penetrate the heart and to so penetrate us that even our love for him is expressed in extravagant ways. You want to know a real life example that doesn't cost somebody their life but could have? And I, never, I never asked her in advance if I could share this story but I was thinking about it. I thought, God, what was just a real practical example of reckless, of reckless love and I thought when I'd asked Suzanne about going to Cambodia as missionaries, a rotten place, and I was, actually at a, I was actually, after talking to her, she didn't see me on board, I was at a silent prayer retreat that Pastor Pete, Pastor Pete was leading years and years ago. And I went to the silent prayer retreat, and I, I always go with no idea in my mind. I said I don't want to know anything, but this time it was different. I said, God, I have to have an answer. And the answer I got wasn't the answer I expected. And I actually talked to you about it. You may probably never remember that. I talked to you about it. I said, I felt like the Lord said, he hasn't talked to Suzanne about it yet. Stop talking to her about it. And so I made a vow. At a final prayer. I never mentioned missions to my wife ever again. And about six or eight or ten months later, never mentioned missions ever again. And we did what we always do. We pray every year. We do an annual missions convention, which we have coming up in May. And we pray, God, how much more extravagantly do you want us to give beyond our ability this year for missions because you love lost people and the best thing I do with my money is invest it into the gospel work, not into another new whatever that would just rust and fall apart. And she looked at me and she said, I'll never forget it. I can remember the chair she was sitting in in front of the computer and she was angry when she said it in the sense of not angry at me, but like, I don't want to say this out loud. And she said, you know what he wants. He doesn't want our money. He wants us. I went, I'm expecting she's going to say this much a month. And I said, what's that mean? And she goes, you know what it means. We're supposed to go to Cambodia. And I said, wow. Now, here's the deal. I'm an, I'm an adventurer. Suzanne always says, I'm never happy because there's always another mountain. I've got to always see what's on the other side of the mountain. So I never have any rest in my bones. But that's not her. You know what her life is? Stay in one place forever, have children and grandbabies, and bring them on your lap and spoil them to death. That is the vision of her ultimate life. And you know what? You know what she was saying? I'm willing to move across the world, 12,000 miles, to a garbage dump, where we knew because we had been there already, where we knew that you got guys with machine guns pointing them at your head all the time and demanding your money. And we're going to take two boys over there, and we're going to try to raise them in a garbage heap, full of corruption, not knowing a soul, and filled with sin, to take the gospel to total strangers. I was thinking about this, I thought, that's reckless love. Reckless love for Jesus. You know what, I don't think it was as much reckless love on my part, because it was reckless, but I'm not sure it was as much reckless love. <laughs> because I'm just like, hey, I want to go to this place, it, looks, it, sounds, it sounds like a grand adventure. You know, and they need the gospel and they ask me to do it and let's go. And I felt God was saying it. But with Susanna it was a different story. It was my kids might not survive. I'm leaving my family. I'm giving it all. Now, if I would have asked Susanna in advance to share that, she would have told me I couldn't have, so forgive me in advance. Or in hindsight rather. Because of your reckless love, you won't take it out on me. Um <laughs> But the reason I wanted to point that out was this. It's giving what you've got. It's giving all of what you've got at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I know about if you walk with God. The Holy Spirit is going to prompt you to do things. Not me prompt you to do it. Maybe it's what Pastor Mitch talking about, tithing. You're not a tither. And he's going to, you're going to say, you know what? I never sat on the outside of the aisle, and today I sat on the outside and made me stand up, and God made me feel really uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But the Spirit of God will prompt you, and here's what you have a tendency to do, because I have a tendency to do it. We shut that voice off and we say, I don't want to listen to that. That's reckless. God's saying, I want you to listen to my voice and I want you to be reckless. See, I know when Suzanne said to do that, there was only one reason she did. My, My debating with her didn't do it. My convincing her the reasons to do it didn't do it. My shutting up did it. And letting the Spirit of the Lord do it. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of the Lord, because He will prompt you to reckless love. He will prompt you to give it all, whatever that all is for you. And it's different for all of us, because we all have different gifts, abilities, and possessions. But He's trying to say, reckless love gives it all. That's what, that's, that's what He's talking about here. It's what the author O. Henry, are you familiar with O. Henry? Wrote a great uh, short story, not great things, but a great short story entitled, The Gift of the Magi. This week when I was preparing this, I could remember the story and I couldn't remember what it was. And I went to the staff and I said, who can tell me what story this is? And they all said, what are you talking about? I said, doesn't everybody read this? And I couldn't remember the name, so we just Googled it. And I said, oh yeah, oh Henry, the gift of the Magi. Are you familiar with that story? I'm hoping you read that in school still. The gift of the Magi. This is a story. It's about this. When I tell you the story, you'll remember it. If you don't, you're just not making, it's not connecting until I tell you the story. It's a story of a, of a young, poor couple that was, fictional, but a, a young, poor couple in the early 1900s in America, growing up in poverty, or living in poverty, brand new married, um, in the early 20s. And their names are Della and Jim. And the story describes them as they live on the edge of poverty, they're very hardworking, and they're barely making ends meet. And in a story, it's written about the, at Christmas time. It's the day before Christmas. And Della is in the story is brokenhearted because she desperately wants to buy Jim a present, but she only has a dollar eighty six cents. And that's how the story remember how the story starts. It starts off a dollar eighty six cents. That's the first, first words of the story that might ring a bell with you. And she looks at the money and unable to purchase anything really with that amount for her husband, with any that would be something he'd really want, she was driven by extravagant love to do something drastic. She sells her beautiful long hair. And the story goes on to talk about how her hair is gorgeous and it's her most valuable thing in her whole life. So she goes to a place that makes wigs and she sells her beautiful long hair to a wig shop and she uses she gets $20 for it. And she uses the money to buy Jim a silver chain for his pocket watch. You see, he has a a family heirloom. It's the only valuable thing they own. And the story goes on to say there were two valuable things they had, her beautiful long hair and his pocket watch. And so she sells her hair, the only thing of of value that she had, to buy a gold chain for his pocket watch. The only valuable thing he had. And the story goes on that Jim returns home from a long day's work and he he walks in the door um, and he's greeted by his wife, who now it says has very short hair like a boy. And he stares at her. And the story says that she gets very upset and, 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 and concerned and she cons- begins to, af- to, to, to uh, affirm him, don't worry about it, my hair will grow back. And she thinks he's angry because he's just staring at her. And, and she's, she's thinking, I, you know, i got to tell you why I did this. But then before she can say a word, he sits on the couch and he puts his hands behind his head. It says, and he, he gives her a gift that he had bought for her he takes out of his pocket two beautiful hair combs. Things that will go in, your, in her beautiful long hair. And it says that he bought the beautiful hair combs by selling his pocket watch that she had just brought a chain for. Friends, the reason O. Henry wrote that story, and the reason it's called the gift of the Magi, who are the Magi, they're the ones who took gifts to Jesus, he's trying to make a point about Christian love. He's trying to say that their reckless love caused them to sacrifice the things that were the most valuable to them. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what extravagant love is. It's a love that sacrifices what is most valuable for what is most precious. That makes sense? It's a love that sacrifices what is most valuable for what is most precious. And that's the type of love that Mary expressed to Jesus. And that's the type of love that Jesus says the gospel is to produce in you and is to produce in me. Now, if you're ready to sign up and say, God, that's what I want, because I'll promise you this, that's the only place you find real joy in Christianity, is when God says, give it all, and you give it all, and what he does is he gives you so much more back. Not of the same thing in kind often, but he gives you so much more back of his presence and his fullness and the sense of knowing you're part of his, of his plan. So if you're ready to sign up, and say, God, I'm ready to be reckless. I'm ready to be extravagant in my love. I want to be like Mary. You know, let me give you a warning if you're ready to do that. If you dare to allow yourself to experience and express this genuine, extravagant, reckless love, this is what I promise you. Others will criticize you for living lives of reckless love. Other people, Christians and non-Christians, but especially Christians will criticize you for living a life of, express, of, of excessive love. Notice in the story of Mark chapter 14. Jesus was at this small gathering. It's very it, it goes to great lengths to say what's going on here between Mark's gospel and, and Luke's gospel. That Jesus was at a small gathering with his closest friends. There weren't a whole bunch of people here. It's important to understand. These were his closest friends. These were God followers. They were the 12 disciples were there, it says. Mary was there, Martha was there, Lazarus was there. He was incredibly involved in their lives. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says they were meeting in the home of Simon the leper, who historians believe or theologians believe was probably someone that Jesus had healed from leprosy. And here they are all in this thing, this small group of devout Jesus' followers who love him with a passion. Yet when Mary does this beautiful gesture, and that's what Jesus called it, a beautiful thing, some of these people in the inner circle began to criticize her. In fact, it says Jesus had to come to her defense. He had to get in between them and say, basically, shut your pie hole. That's what he said. That's the the Hebrew translation, the Greek. Shut your pie hole. Um, that's That's what he's telling them. Shut up, leave her alone. He's not being kind at this time. I say he's not being gentle. He stands between them. <laughs> Friends, there is an important principle for us to, to learn here. Suzanne, I got a lot of stuff to, that you're going to talk to me about <laughs> later, aren't you? Um, <laughs> here's the important principle: Others will criticize you when you live a life of extravagant love, and there's a reason for it. It's because your actions threaten them. That's why. You make them feel uncomfortable with the way you're living because the Spirit of the Lord will use your life to challenge them to live differently, and they don't want to live differently. They're really happy metering out the nard. Two drops. Two drops. I feel like I'm okay because it's two drops at a time. Now let me warn you about something. If you do the things you do so that other people will notice you, and you're trying to impress them or belittle other people, then you're wrong. It's error. However, if you live a life of reckless love, trying to give great glory and honor to Jesus Christ, people will notice. They noticed Mary. They noticed Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it will upset religious people around you. I remember how upset people were. People in the church and other pastors and my district leadership. When I announced one day in 2001, God wants us to leave this church we had planted in Marquette, Michigan, incredibly successful, thriving, growing, 10 years old, hundreds of people, buildings bought and paid for, land bought and paid for, could not, could not put all the people in the sanctuary. Packed to the walls. A center aisle, not, not exaggerating, that wide. And walls, out, chairs out to the walls. You couldn't find a chair. You couldn't move in the sanctuary. The first row of chairs was right there. I spit on them all the time. Because they were literally, they were right there, packed in the place. And when we felt God say, I want you to leave this, this thing that you love so desperately, and I want you to move to Cedarburg, Wisconsin, a city I didn't even like. I was born and raised there. I'm like, I escaped there. I don't want to go back. I personally, you know, I'm just, i not an artsy kind of guy, you know, and so I fit better in Port Washington. And and, uh, I said, but God, you're telling me to do it, to go and shut down a failed church plant and restart it. I'm like, really? And we're being to tell people that. You know what we heard? Not one person ever went up to Suzanne and I, slapped us on the back, and said, I think that's what a great thing. Oh, man, that is, that is, God obviously told you to do this. You know what we heard all the time? You're crazy. You're nuts. Family members said, how can you dare you do that to my kids, my grandkids? How can you, how can you, how can you do this to your family, Mark. You've struggled in ministry. You've got this thing going. You're finally making a good salary. What are you possibly doing? Going back, to starting over from zero with a promise of zero dollars. Move from one state to another. Move into a basement. I'm not trying to celebrate me. I'm celebrating, I'm celebrating love, extravagant love. I'm just giving real world examples. And you know what everybody did? They criticized me. My spiritual leaders said to me, "You're crazy." You know what they said? You finally, you finally arrived. You know what some of them did, Dave? They sat me down and they explained to me how you're supposed to climb the ladder. See, I didn't understand it. That's what they thought. I didn't understand it. That don't you understand, Mark, that you get to this size church, you build it up, and then you went, the only time you leave this church is to go to a bigger church with a bigger salary. And then you go to that church, you stay there for a few years, and get a bigger salary, and then you move to the bigger church with a bigger salary. And they said, don't you understand you're being downwardly mobile? And we're all supposed to be upwardly mobile. You know what? They got angry. You know why they got angry? I don't think they got angry because, because they really cared about my, my, my financial position. I don't think anybody really got angry because they worried about the church, because the church has done fine. I don't think they got angry about all things. You know what they think they got angry about? It made them uncomfortable. I didn't realize that until I walked through it. It made them uncomfortable because maybe, just maybe, God wanted them to do the same thing. Just maybe God was calling them from their comfortable position that had finally been established to abandon it all for the sake of the call and that that example made them uncomfortable. That's what reckless love does. Reckless love makes makes status quo people feel uncomfortable. Understand. The Holy Spirit, if you have an open heart, will prompt you to act in reckless love. To give your last dollar, like he just used an example of love, the chapter earlier of the widow who gave her two small copper coins he didn 't just put that in there for because he had the, the Holy Spirit had nothing else to inspire it 's all about what love is really like, reckless love might give you your last dollar, or maybe he 's going to challenge you at least to to give until it affects your lifestyle, or he 's going to challenge you in reckless love to go and take the gospel to difficult. People in hard places like Cambodia or Saukville. right? Or Milwaukee. Maybe reckless love will challenge you to befriend people who are very hard to love. They're all over the place. It's your neighbor who plays music at 2 in the morning and wakes you up. Or it's your mother-in-law who criticizes you every time she sees you. That's not my mother-in-law. That's why I can say it. It's Honestly, it's not my (laughs) mother-in-law. These things don't make sense. They're not easy. But when they are spirit-directed, they reveal a truly transformed heart and transformed life, and that's what Jesus is getting to. I want to close today by turning to another scripture where Jesus probed the depths and authenticity of of his followers' love. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Chapter 21. Last thing we'll look at. John 21. We're going to start the last verse of the preceding chapter, preceding paragraph, verse 14, to kind of set a time frame for you. This was after Jesus died and rose again. After Peter had denied Jesus three times. Chapter 21, starting verse 14. He said... This is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus' simple question to Peter. I can put my name in there. Mark, do you love me? And you know what? Our tendency is that to like, like Peter, we answer very quickly. Of course I do. I go to church. Of course I do. I'm a Christian. But Jesus asks the same question three times of Peter. Wanting Peter to really think about it. Do I really love Jesus? The question, it says, grieved him. Because he had to think deeply about it. Do I have real, reckless, extravagant love for God? Peter proved that he did. By a lifetime of honoring Jesus through devoted ministry, reckless love expressed itself through selfless service in Peter's life. He was right. He did love him. It was radical, and it was extravagant. So the question for us, to ask ourselves is, do I really love Jesus? And the way we answer that is we ask ourselves, is there any evidence of recklessness? Is there any evidence of extravagant love in your life? Do we break the vial and pour out what the Spirit asks of us? Or do we just meter it out drip by drip? Drip. Friends, I'll tell you this. Real life is only found in breaking the neck off the vial and pouring it out. And he said to her she would always be remembered because she gave what she had. And that's what he asks of us. By the prompting of the Spirit, not by the prompting of the pastor, but the prompting of the Spirit, are we going to recklessly follow him wherever he leads to do whatever he says to do and to give whatever he has to give? Short of that is not real love. Would you stand with me?